Give a hand, give praise to God, yes. And this incredible God that we worship has spoken in His Word. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And we come today to His Word in Exodus chapter 17. We've been working our way verse by verse, section by section through the book of Exodus. And we come to Exodus chapter 17. And let's look together at God's Word. Exodus chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why do you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up on the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. But whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. While Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. This is the word of God. If you've been with us as we've been, wander- as we've been going through the book of uh, Exodus, the people have been on a road trip, haven't they? <laughs> They've been journeying now from from, uh, from the Red Sea to Sinai, and the two words that Moses has used to mark this road trip have, has been grumbling and testing. <laughs> you ever been on a road trip like that? Not, doesn't sound like a positive trip, does it? Full of grumbling and testing. And so maybe the experience of the Israelites will help you feel better about any bad road trip experiences you may have had. 
Over the last five chapters, Exodus 14 to 19, the people are traveling through the desert, Red Sea to Sinai, Egypt to Horeb. In chapter 14, we had the glorious Red Sea parting. And while the trip began well, it slowly began to go downhill. Chapter 15, they stopped at Elam. They tested the Lord, they grumbled against Him, and God rescued them by turning the bitter water sweet. In chapter 16, the people had traveled through the wilderness of sin. Again, not a place you would want to find yourself as an Israelite. They grumbled again, this time for food, and they tested the Lord, and and the Lord provided for them manna and quail to feed them throughout their 40 years in the wilderness. And now we come to chapter 17, and there's a third and a final test, a third and a final incident of grumbling, and this time they're going to grumble for water again. It's been a rough trip for the people of God, but the Lord has remained in the driver's seat. Look at verse 1. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord, and they camped at Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. Notice first that the people moved on by stages according to the commandment of the Lord, that through it all God was with them. And God was bringing them through the desert one step at a time. We need to realize that in our life, God rarely takes us directly from point A to point B. And God loves to take you on the backside country roads of life because He is doing something in you on the journey. God is growing you and maturing you on the journey. And that's what He's doing in the nation of Israel. The people arrive at at a new location But the same problems remain. The same tests remain. In fact, the message of chapter 17 is exactly the same as what we saw last week in chapter 16, that God's people were saved to trust. They are once again, the third time now, going to be taught that they need to trust the Lord. The third test with the third lesson, will the people trust Him or will they grumble against Him? God was at work producing trust and faith stage by stage within the people to grow them and their trust, their faith toward God. And so they've arrived at a place called Rephidim. And I love it. The Hebrew for Rephidim means resting place. So in other words, they have found the gas station rest stop right outside of Sinai where they're trying to go. But I want to tell you, if you've been on a lot of road trips, you know that not all rest stops are the same, right? Friends, you could stop at a Bucky's, or you could find yourself where these folks are about to find themselves at one without any water, any resources. This was one of those sketchy resting places where you're actually asking yourself, can I make it the rest of the way? They decide they're going to stop anyway. And so the people were saved to trust, and here at Rephidim, at this rest stop, they're going to encounter two tests meant to produce trust in them, two conflicts that God wants to use in their life to produce faith in Him. We see first, the first conflict is this, God provided water from the rock. That's the first thing that we're going to see, God provided water from the rock. Look at verse 2. Now the passage continues. 
Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? It's crazy. God had just provided for them water not that long ago and food. And again, they're still eating from the manna and the quail that God provides every day for them. And now they're quarreling with Moses going, hey, we're thirsty again. And underneath their quarreling with Moses, they were ultimately testing the Lord. And Moses has had enough. He's had enough of the kids in the back seat whining on the trip as they're trying to get to where God wants them to go. And he says, verse 4, So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? Ever been there? They are almost ready to stone me. To stone me. They weren't simply grumbling. The people are rioting. They're hangry and I guess thirsty. They are very upset. And rather than remembering that God had met their needs prior, they were in protest, and they wanted it now. And God responds decisively, powerfully, and graciously to them. Verse 5, And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, taking in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So the Lord says, Moses, take the stick in your hand, go to the rock. I'm going to stand at the rock. You're going to strike it, and water is going to come out. God is going to provide for the people in a miraculous way. And there's a few things to notice in this text. First, notice that the staff was a symbol of God's power. We would be remiss if we made a big deal out of the sort of stick that he has, like he has some sort of wand from Harry Potter. No, 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 no. The stick was just a stick. (laughs) But God used it to accomplish his Purposes. It's the same staff that Moses used to perform miracles in Egypt. He parted the sea. It's the one he's going to use in the battle of Amalek. It's a symbol for God's power and authority. We need to remember God saved his people time and time again with a stick. And friends, if that can be of an encouragement to you, if God can use a stick, friends, God can use you. He used the staff to rescue his people. And notice that God stands before Moses and he goes to the rock. God continued to be with his people even as they grumble against him. God blessed them with his presence graciously. Moses wasn't alone in leading this nation. God was saying, hey, I've been with you, and I'm going to continue with you. And even what's in front of you may seem impossible. I'm with you. I've never left you, and I will be with you until the end. In fact, God's presence was the very core issue for the people of God. Look at verse 7. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because, the people, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not. Ultimately, water wasn't the issue. The question was about God's presence. 
Was God with them? And by with them, he doesn't simply mean as he's standing with us, is he for them and actually blessing them on this journey? Or was he not? So they name the place there Massa, which means testing, and Meribah, which means quarreling. And I would venture to say that whatever protest and grumbling may be in your life, the ultimate question is really about God's presence in your life. (laughs) Even if it may seem unlikely, even when you're in the middle of nowhere with no water in sight, friends, if you are God's, he is there. (laughs) And as Paul would write over in the book of Romans, if God is with you and God is for you, then who can stand against you? God's presence and power was the remedy to the grumbling hearts of the people. Notice now, he says, Moses, take the staff, and here's what I want you to do. I'll stand before you, and you will strike the rock. We notice next that the rock was a source of God's provision. God not only used a stick, God used a rock. If you've ever, again, been concerned about your qualifications for God to use you, you at least got more than a stick and a rock, Scott, right? And the language here is interesting. He says, it says Moses. He says, pass by or literally pass over the people and strike the rock. Should be somewhat familiar. Remember, just chapters ago in chapter 12, the people celebrated the Passover when God would strike down the Egyptians and passed over the people of God. The same language is used here, and God is providing for them And he says, but you're going to need to strike the rock. And this wasn't something, you can read some commentators that try to kind of naturally explain this. Like, you know, there are these kinds of rocks in these places that can provide water. And that's great. Maybe that was what was going on. But I think we need to see that this is ultimately a miraculous work of God. This is miraculous deliverance. Moses, pass over, strike the rock, and water will flow out of the rock, and the people will drink. And it's fascinating that it says, God says, I'm going to stand before you. And God is basically saying, Moses, strike where I stand. In fact, he's almost literally saying, strike me. When you hit the rock, you're going to hit me. And in fact, God would later want us to see this close relationship between himself and the rock. Think about this. Over in the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 32, God says this. The rock, referring again to God, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. And if you go on to keep reading Deuteronomy 32, God gets called repeatedly the rock throughout this chapter. Chapter 17 is the beginning of the wandering. Chapter 32 is toward the end of the people's wandering. And both are marked by the reality that Yahweh is the rock that provides for his people. And he's, I'm going to provide for you by being struck. I'm going to save you through being pierced. Friends, does this sound familiar to us thousands of years later? Because it should, the rock, here's the next point, points us to Jesus who was struck for our sins and pierced for our iniquities. This rock points to Jesus. 
He, this rock was meant to be a picture for them that, that I am going to always provide for you, even if it means I've got to get struck to do it. And the Apostle Paul actually makes this connection for us. Over in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, look at this. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. You see it? He says, ultimately, this rock was Christ. In other words, it points toward him. Christ provided for them because he was Yahweh in the wilderness. We've got to remember this Christmas season, we'll make a lot about the baby in the manger. But we've got to remember the baby in the manger was God Almighty. People often talk about, well, Jesus came to exist in the manger. No, friends, Jesus has always existed. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He is the rock who provided for the people through being struck. He is the spiritual rock that provides spiritual drink for his thirsty people. And what's funny is even the gospel writers make this connection. You can notice this on your notes, kind of circle it, underline it, go read it later. But in John chapter 19, verse 34, there's a fascinating case when Jesus is on the cross, a soldier spears him through, and what flows out of his side? Blood and water. That's exactly right. And I think John is thinking, hey, the people who would have read the Old Testament and known this are going, that looks familiar. See the incredible mercy, the divine grace, and the miraculous power of God. He provided water for the people from the rock, therefore they should trust Him. God has provided and proved Himself time and time again to be trustworthy. He's proven it through giving His Son on our behalf. Friends, God has proven himself time and time again, but we are slow of heart to believe all God has promised. It's going to talk about later how the people are going to find themselves in a similar situation like this again in the book of Numbers, I believe chapter 20-ish. And it's going to describe that in, that in the wilderness, the people hardened their heart, that they became like the Egyptians, that they just got freed from. But God is going to continue to work with these people, even as they grumble in the wilderness. This isn't the last time these people grumble. And it's a lesson to us. The Apostle Paul picks up where he left off, talking about how Christ was the rock. And he says this, 1 Corinthians 10, Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as an example for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Friends, we must not let God's provision for us be forgotten. In fact, this tells us that the key ingredient of present trust is remembering past deliverance. If you're struggling to trust God in the present, it means sometimes we might need to look in the rear view and see all God has done for us in the past. 
we must not forget his past goodness because that enables us to trust him better in the presence. That's what God is doing here by providing water from the rock. But he ain't done yet. They got more going on at this rest stop. Notice that the second test happens. God provided victory in the battle. From verse 8 on to the end of the chapter, there's going to be a fight. They come to this sketchy gas station, and people want to get in a fight, (laughs) right? The second half of the passage, and this is really Israel's first battle as a nation. Abraham and the patriarchs had their own little fights and skirmishes, but the people of Israel never really have gotten in a fight, even with the Egyptians. They really didn't do much there, did they? Look what happens. Chapter 17, verse 8. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So notice, notice the contrast here. He says, hey, go grab, my, go grab my staff. Let's get involved in this. Three chapters earlier, when they came to the Red Sea, God said this, Exodus 14, 14, the Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. In the Red Sea, God called the people to be still and silent and trust God to bring the victory. But in chapter 17, the Lord isn't calling his people to be silent and still. He's calling them to battle, to war. God says, I'm going to bring the victory, but I need you to put your boots on, grab the sword, and get ready to go to war. And both battles required trust. And friends, your Christian life is much like this. There are going to be times in your Christian life where God does something and it is God and God alone and you brought nothing into the equation. He doesn't even include you. He's at work and you're over here oblivious as to what he's doing and you're only going to notice it later. But there are other times that God wants us to bring, to bring the boots and the staff and to come into war with him. There are different ways this works in our Christian life. And we might get a little deep into some theology here, but I want us to see this. He tells us that the battles of the Red Sea teach us about our Christian life. That the Red Sea is a picture, here's a big word for you, of monergistic salvation. Use that at lunch today and you'll sound super smart. There's a $3 word for you. And let me define that $3 word once we get it down. Monergistic. Here is monergism. It literally means there's mono, one work. That there are things that God and God alone does that we really don't play a big part in. That we're sort of passive recipients in. This is how God works when he saves us. Let me show you this in Ephesians chapter 1. Look at this. And I want you to notice as we read this passage, who is not mentioned in this text? Ephesians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace." 
which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as the plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in himself, things in heaven and things on earth. Yes, Paul wrote that as one really long run-on sentence. Terrible English, but great theology, right? Terrible English, but wonderful truth. And ultimately, what did he say we brought to the equation? Where does God say in here that we we bring the sin that makes this all necessary? But friends, God does this work in us. And we're even told that even the faith that we exercise to believe in the gospel and believe in what the Father and the Son and the Spirit did, even that is a gift and the work of God in our life. Ephesians chapter 2, 8 and 9. Look at this. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. Friends, if we're boasting that we're just so much better because, well, I believed or I'm smarter or, or I've really got this all figured out, we've missed the points. God does the work. Our salvation is monergistic. It is a one-way love. God does it. We're passive recipients of the benefit. We need only to be silent like the Red Sea party in Exodus 14. And while we step forward in faith and we do respond to the gospel, even the faith to respond is a gift of grace. But there are other times in the Christian life, like Exodus 17, The battle with Amalek is a picture, here's another big words for us, of synergistic sanctification. Again, big words for us. We can take these and use these at lunch and sound real smart during the week. First, synergism. Here this means together work. Think of synergy, two or more people working together. And sanctification is simply the process of growing to be more like Christ. Friends, God wants us to think deeply on these things and to realize theology matters. Theology matters for us to think about. And while God alone accomplishes our salvation, God works with us in our growth in holiness. Right after Ephesians chapter 1 and 2 is Ephesians chapter 6, where we we read this. Look at this. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. He uses warfare language here. He says, we've got to put on the armor and we've got to be ready to go to war. Your Christian life is not something that you will ever just passively coast into. You will never become more holy simply by passively going through life. If you want to grow in your faith, you've got to be willing to get up and go to war. He says if you want to defeat sin in your life, you can't do it without grace-driven and empowered effort. You will never drift toward holiness. You've got to actively pursue it. 
And there are things in your life that sometimes God's going to miraculously do and, and bring the victory for you and do it one-handed and not need your help. But there's sometimes God just wants you to get out of bed and go to war and He's going to figure it all out. Some of us are more comfortable just to stay in bed and go, well, God's going to do it. <laughs> friends, get up. Yes, friends, God will feed you tomorrow, but He also wants you to get up and go to work so you can buy the food you need to eat. You see the difference? And you see why this matters? That, that if we get these things confused in our life, we'll sometimes be blaming, where are you, God? When really he's like, you just got to go to the door and get out the door and go, go do this. God sometimes brings a, a monergistic salvation. The Red Sea, he parted the sea, and the people are like, I guess I'm going to walk through. <laughs> And then other times, like Exodus 17, God works with us to do this. And so the question is, are we ready for war? Are we ready to stand and put on the armor and fight to grow in our faith? Are we taking up the sword of the Spirit? I love how there's people, sometimes we'll have a sin in our life. Maybe it's, hey, I can't stop looking at things on my cell phone that I'm not supposed to look at. And it's like, what I'm going to do is I'm going to set my cell phone right here and I'm just going to pray. You know, God might want you to put the cell phone up. Put it in another room, lock the door, give it to your wife, whatever, and then go to war. Some of us think, well, I'm just going to pray and God's going to change me. God does use prayer, but friends, sometimes we got to put the phone up. Sometimes we got to take additional steps for God to be at work in us. And so he calls the, the people of God to arms in Exodus 17 as they have a battle against Amalek. And Amalek is a descendant of Esau, the brother of Jacob. And remember, Esau and Jacob had all kinds of beef throughout their life. And these people, even though they're generations removed from that, they apparently are still at war with one another. And they went after them because Israel appeared faint and weak. So Moses says, Joshua, come lead the army. It's the first time we hear about Joshua. He's going to become very important later, right, as a military leader in the nation of Israel. But he's going to lead the people Moses is now in his 80s, certainly not in any shape to be fighting a war, right? So he sends Joshua in. He entrusts leadership to the next generation. Joshua is going to lead the army, but Moses still had a role to play. So I'm going to stand on the hill. I'm going to raise my hands in the air with my staff. And the staff that provided the water would also provide victory in the battle. And this staff in the air wasn't for some psychological encouragement. This was a symbol of Moses interceding for the people. He was praying for them. He was blessing them. It was a sort of benediction like we do at the end of the service of God's presence and power and promise with them in their fights. Ultimately, Moses' staff pointed toward their true dependence that God is the source of their victory. That's what the staff was for. This is going, hey, God is the one who will do this. Not because Joshua was great, though I'm sure he was a great military leader, but because God was with them. Look at verse 10. Look what happens next. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. 
But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him. And he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Moses lifts his hands, blesses them. They begin to win. As his arms droop, things begin to change. So... Aaron and Hur see Moses tiring in their work. They grab some rocks to sit on, and they're going to hold up this guy's arms. I want you to literally picture this. They're holding up his arms as he's doing this. And so, friends, there's a lesson for us here. You were not meant to do life alone. Friends, as the church, we're meant to hold one another up. When we see people weak and tiring in our congregation and around us, we need to be errands and hers for other people to hold them up. Friends, maybe you need people to hold you up. And are you in community close enough with folks that they would know that you were tiring? Are we willing to go and to encourage and to hold another, others up? We simply cannot do life by ourselves. And we got to let people know what's going on. And we got to encourage others in their faith. Sometimes this holding up comes in the form of intercession, like Moses praying for the army. Sometimes it means pursuing one another and coming and holding up their arms, bearing their load. Sometimes it means bringing the right tools along. They bring a rock and go, okay, Moses, sit on the rock. <laughs> Sometimes it means bringing the right tools to give rest and help. The New Testament would sum this up this way. Galatians 6.2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. He says, do you want to do what Jesus called you to do? First, you've got to be around people with burdens. If you're not around people with burdens, you can't bear them, right? Then he says, you've got to be around people with burdens. You can't live life in a silo, but you also got to bear others' burdens. Help carry their load, hold their arms up with tools, with prayer, and with care. And Joshua and the people prevail in the battle, not simply due to Moses, but due to the community working together. God brought victory through the community of faith becoming a community of care. What battles would we as a church prevail in if we cared for one another in this way? If we were like the friends in Exodus 17, who rather than being grumblers, became carers. Rather than being grumbling about their own needs, came and cared for others around them. And the nations mark this victory. They set up a memorial because we, like Israel, are prone to forget. In verse 14, look how the passage ends. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and calling the name of it, the Lord is my banner, saying, a a hand upon the throne of the Lord, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation generation. First, notice they wrote this down in a book. That might have been what was eventually going to become the book of Exodus. And Moses built an altar and said, the Lord is my banner, Yahweh Nisi, the Lord has been with us. The people will war with Amalek and the Amalekites for generations, even to King David. This isn't the last time they're going to have these sort of battles. But whatever the people face, he's saying, trust 
the Lord, don't rely on your own strength. And he says, make sure the next generation, Joshua and others know this, we need to remember this. The message of Exodus 17 is really summarized in the words of Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your paths. Friends, it didn't make sense to strike a rock. It didn't make sense that Moses was going to hold up his arms and that was going to bring victory. But it said, trust the Lord, and He would bring this about. And the, present, and the passage ends where it begins... Was the Lord truly among them? Yes, He was. The final point we see is that a key ingredient for present trust is recognition of God's presence with us. If you want present trust, recognize that God is with you. And in this Christmas season, Advent, which the church has historically called it, is a season where we remember the presence of God. In the Christmas story, we read about the birth of Jesus, born to his virgin mother, and we even get told that the meaning of his name and the purpose of his ministry. Look what we read. Matthew chapter 1, verse 22 and 23 tells us this. All this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Friends, God brought salvation through a virgin girl, and he would be called Emmanuel, God with us, God's presence. But we know that even the manger stood in the shadow of the cross. That Jesus was the rock, struck for our sins, who would provide for us living water, salvation from our sins, and even the Holy Spirit dwelling inside us. Look at this invitation Jesus makes over in John chapter 7. As he stands on the last day of the feast on the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Spirit has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as of yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. In other words, he's telling us God's presence was with us in the manger, and his presence is with you now through the Spirit. God's presence flowing out of us into mission to the world. Let me say it this way. If he would be born for you and ultimately die for you, and forever dwell within you, certainly you can trust him with your life and your eternity. If he would do all of this, certainly you can trust him with your eternity. Do you find yourself today like the grumbling Israelites? Maybe you find yourself at a rest stop in the desert with an army fast approaching. And the message of Exodus 17 would be, trust Jesus, get with some brothers and sisters, and get to war. <laughs> get with brothers and sisters, trust Jesus, be a part of God's plan for discipleship, the local church, and get to war. To trust in Jesus. Or maybe today you find yourself lost without hope, under the condemnation of sin and looking for forgiveness. And the good news is that Jesus saves you out of his own power alone. He doesn't need you to bring 
your best or your good works to the table. Friends, Jesus doesn't need you to bring, to, to, to begin to clean up your life because he doesn't simply want to clean up your life. He wants all of your life. And friends, Jesus saves in and of his own power by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. That means no matter how far gone you may be, you're not too far gone for Jesus to transform you. And so today, I would invite you, if you've not trusted in Jesus for the first time for your salvation, to place your faith and hope in the one who died for your sins and who rose again on the third day, to place your full weight and trust in him, and he will save you and bring you to himself. Jesus paid it all, and all to him I owe. Sin has left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. The Israelites ask, is the Lord among us or not? And I would say today, friends, is the Lord among us? Yes, he's here and he's working and he'll be with us as we go out into the world. Let's stand and let's pray together. God in heaven, you have spoken and you've spoken clearly and powerfully to us. Lord, you have given ingredients for grumbling people to find hope and satisfaction in you. And so, Lord, I ask, Lord, as we take this time to respond to your word, that, Lord, if there's anybody who doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, that they would right now call upon you and you would save them and meet them right where they are. Lord, we're thankful that you're the one who brings the work of salvation and not us. We're thankful that that you don't need our, our good works, that we only bring the sin necessary to bring salvation, and you do the rest. And so, Lord, we trust you. But, Lord, I pray for those of us who do know you and are going through the wilderness life that you call us to, Lord, that you would help us to see, to look back and have past remembrance of all that you've done for us, and also that you would help us to remember your presence with us in the Holy Spirit. And that if we can trust you to be born and to die for us and to forever dwell with us, we can trust you with everything else. And so, Lord, we give you our life and our eternity, and we trust you forever. Lord, whatever we need to do in these next moments, we ask that you would do it. And we ask and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.
It's been good to be together and to worship the Lord. I want to invite Sean and Chastity to come forward. We've never got to do this with them. Um, they, Chastity and Sean and them, obviously not only has he joined us as our student ministry director, but they're joining the church with us. And I thought, well, they don't need to miss out on being up here in front of everybody and everybody stare at them. Why would I, why would I, you know, why would I take away that joy from them? Let them see, put up your hand. If you'll be a church family to them and love them and pray for them, just like Aaron and her held up the arms of Moses. We're here to hold up your arms, right? We already feel like y'all are kind of a part of our church family. So it's sort of like, hi, I know y'all have been, you know, kind of here for a while, but but we're just so glad you guys are here. I'm thankful for them to, to be a part of our church family. I'm thankful for what Sean's doing with our youth, right? And especially thankful for Miss Jen and the joy she brings to our church, right? Just super excited to have them here and thought, you know, we haven't brought them forward to join our church. and thought this would be a perfect time to do that. So feel free to gather around him, give him a hug. If you've not met Sean and his family, to come do that. But I think most people here probably are, have met them before. So I'm going to close this gathering with a benediction. Remember, we'll probably take about five to ten minutes before we'll start our, um, our family meeting. But we're going to read this, the Great Commission from Matthew chapter 28. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. And here's the promise, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen.